History is the most important subject that you can study. And if you can't see what's happening in the past, you can't look nearly as far in the future. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Men will still say, this was our fighting power. This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. Why is it so hard to stand alone? To stand up for what's right when everyone else around you is doing the wrong thing? It's not easy. And it's even harder when it may cost you your life or the lives of your loved ones. I think about this a lot in the historical context. Imagine you were a German during World War II and you knew you were sending Jews to their death, say you are like a guard, would you have stood up and either tried to stop what was going on or maybe hide some Jews as an act of disobedience? Or would you have just followed along? That's a hard question to confront. And then put yourself in that situation when you have a family And what would you do in that situation if the answer would lead to the death of your family? Would you still do it? World War II and the Holocaust is full of those kinds of questions. And I think most of us, when we think about the Holocaust, we typically ask the question of, if we were a Jew in the Holocaust in a concentration camp, would we be one of the ones that survived? Is our will to live strong enough? Could we survive the torture every day, the abuse and the trauma? But I think the harder and more important question when it comes to understanding yourself and your weaknesses is not the question of if you'd survive. It's the question of, would you commit the evil? And look, there are many scientific studies out there that show that most people's answer to this question isn't the one you'd hope for. I remember the famous Milgram study. That was a study when a person was asked by someone dressed up like a scientist to give an electric shock to a test subject in a different room. The test subject was actually an actor. And the scientists would instruct that person to increase the voltage of the shock periodically. So as the study would go on, the actor would cry out in pain and act out that he's in greater and greater trauma from what was going on. And in that study, two-thirds of those who were participating in it, of course unaware that it was in fact an experiment, two-thirds of them sent shocks to that study until the highest voltage was reached. In no point in that experiment did they stop, even as the actor in the other room would scream louder and louder. There's something like 18 other studies that all show that this is a normal response for people, that most people, when given an order to, are willing to inflict pain on another person, especially if they don't see that person in pain. 
So when it comes to our human nature, the answer to that question doesn't look good, does it? And it's actually pretty terrifying to think about what a human is capable of doing, even in something less of an extreme situation like the Holocaust. Look at what almost an entire nation did in that situation. But what would you do in a situation that wasn't as extreme? When someone's pain or suffering or death isn't on the line, and you're still required to stand up by yourself at risk of death to do the right thing. What if doing the right thing was something like just not conforming to a different culture? How difficult would that be for you? And me too, I ask the same question. What if that culture was not only different, but was viewed as more progressive, more intellectual, modern, tolerant? What if that culture brought access to trade, wealth, and power? What if that culture would even potentially bring some safety to you and your family? All of that sounds very beneficial if you were to adopt that culture, at least on the surface, but you have to think deeper than that. This is a situation that confronted the Jews in the second century BCE. When Alexander conquered the Persian Empire, he brought with him the Greek culture, their religion, their way of life, social standards, philosophy, all of that. And with them came opportunity. But for the Jews, taking that opportunity would cost them everything. Their law, their religion, their culture, and their identity. And many of them, especially in the cities and Jerusalem in particular, chose to give up all of that to conform to the new culture. That's where we left off in the previous episode. The Jews that wanted to adopt Greek custom and religion, what we termed the Hellenized Jews, took over leadership in Jerusalem. And whether they wanted to conform out of fear or out of a desire to look like everyone else, we don't know for sure. But I imagine for the most part, it was those wanting to conform because they wanted to look normal. Regardless of why they did it, those Jews ended up creating civil war. That gave Antiochus the excuse to come and pillage Jerusalem. And because these Jews were in the leadership position, and because they were so eager to get along with their Greek overlord, they actually invited him in and his army without a fight. And thousands died for it. Thousands more men, women, and children were sold as slaves. The temple was utterly profane. The sanctuary cast down. Pig sacrifices to Greek gods were being conducted in the temple and all over Judea. The gold and the silver, the national treasure, all of that was stolen. And those who resisted were murdered. And after he did that, Antiochus built a citadel nearby Jerusalem to prevent the Jews from rebelling and having any second thoughts about adopting Greek ways. And then he sent out agents all over Judea into the villages and smaller cities to enforce his decrees. Now what's interesting in this is that you see a natural difference between the reaction in, say, Jerusalem and the bigger cities versus the rural population. And I find this fascinating because 
You see this across many different nations and people, even today in the United States. There is a reason why most rural areas vote red today, while cities vote blue. Cities bring more people together, and with more people come new ideas and more trade opportunities, an easier time to scale your business or take advantage of opportunities to make wealth. But with cities comes a greater reliance on government. After all, it's the city government that provides the water, the sanitation, and all the services you need to survive. Rural areas, on the other hand, foster dependence on the family unit and a focus on God. When weather patterns, river levels, and pests put your livelihood at stake, you're going to be way more interested in keeping God happy, aren't you? It kind of reminds me of the saying that there are no atheists in a foxhole. Well, in general, that looks true for rural communities as well. So there were differences back then, just like we see differences today. And in the rural communities, you have a stiffer resistance to Hellenization. The Jews there were more conservative, less reliant on trade and government, more independent and more reliant on God. So they were more readily able to resist the encroachment of the Greek custom and Greek religion. Still, resistance was not easy because resistance meant death. This was a time when even just having a copy of the book of the law could lead to your death. Antiochus was trying to stamp out the entire religion of God. This wasn't just the subjugation of a people. This was the subjugation of a people and their culture. A complete wipeout and elimination of their law and religion. And it's no surprise that many Jews compromised to save their lives and the lives of their family. So when royal enforcers came to a village called Modin to compel the Jews there to make the pagan sacrifice, they probably didn't expect trouble. Modin was located 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And in this village was a well-respected man named Mattathias. Mattathias was of the priestly line, and he had a large family with five sons. The enforcers there, the agents of Antiochus, they wanted Mattathias to lead in the sacrifice because if they got the most respected man in that village to make the sacrifices, well, it makes it a lot likelier that the rest of the town will just follow along. So they approach him and ask him to make the sacrifice. Now we have pretty much an eyewitness account of what Mattathias did and the events that surround all of this history that we're talking about today in the first book of Maccabees. It's the source Josephus uses for his history. And here's what the first book of Maccabees records. Quote, The officers of the king addressed Mattathias. You are a leader, an honorable and great man in this city, supported by sons and kindred. Come now, be the first to obey the king's command, as all the Gentiles and Judeans and those who are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your son shall be numbered among the king's friends, and you and your son shall be honored with silver and gold and many gifts. End quote. So the enforcers are offering a bribe, a bribe of money and of status, all Mattathias has to do is make the sacrifice. Here's how Mattathias reacts. Quote, but Mattathias answered in a loud voice, 
Although all the Gentiles in the king's realm obey him so that they forsake the religion of their ancestors and consent to the king's orders, yet I and my sons and my kindred will keep to the covenant of our ancestors. Heaven forbid that we should forsake the law and the commandments. We will not obey the words of the king by departing from our religion in the slightest degree. End quote. Now there's a man who stood alone. Now this wasn't done lightly. Remember, refusing to sacrifice would carry the penalty of death. And after he said that, you can see how tempting that offer was because a different Jew who was watching and listening in the area decides to step up and make the sacrifice instead. And at this point, Mattathias becomes the leader the Jews needed. He's not just someone who refuses to give up his religion and reject his law. He's not just standing by himself, but he's someone who is going to try to reverse the situation. He's like a German who not only refused to ship the Jews off to their death, but one who is going to put a stop to it. Here's what Maccabees records that Mattathias did. Quote, As he finished saying these words, a certain Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modin, according to the king's order. When Mattathias saw him, he was filled with zeal. His heart was moved and his just fury was aroused. He sprang forward and killed him upon the altar. At the same time, he also killed the messenger of the king who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. Thus he showed his zeal for the law, just as Phineas did with Zimri, son of Salut. Then Mattathias cried out in the city, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and who stands by the covenant follow me. Then he and his sons fled to the mountains, leaving behind the city all their possessions. End quote. Mattathias steps up and he puts an end to it, at least in this village of Modin. That reminds me so much of King David, who stood alone by standing up to Goliath, furious that the Gentiles would defy the armies of God. And by doing that, he led Israel to victory. Mattathias is doing the same thing here. He is more zealous for the law than his own life and takes a stand. And it's all for the law. Now, he has his work cut out for him for sure. After all, this is just one village in all of Judea that is doing this. And there's a lot of work to be done if he's actually going to reverse the situation. But his example inspires others to take a stand as well. Josephus says many others did the same. When the king's generals heard about it, the troops from the citadel in Jerusalem, they sallied out and pursued some of those Jews into the desert. Now, this isn't a group being led by Mattathias at the time. This is another group of Jews that were rebelling against Antiochus' command and standing up for the law. And these Jews were holed up in some caverns. Josephus says the troops tried to persuade the Jews to give up their law, to spare their lives, but the Jews don't. Facing imminent death, they decide not to give in. They would not give up their law. And because this happened on the Sabbath, they didn't even put up a fight or resist the troops. This was an early tactic by the enemies of the Jews, by the way, to try to force a battle or a fight on the Sabbath. Here's what's recorded to have happened in these caverns. 
quote, the pursuers said to them, enough of this, come out and obey the king's command and you will live. But they replied, we will not come out, nor will we obey the king's command to profane the Sabbath. Then the enemy attacked them at once, but they did not retaliate. They neither threw stones nor blocked up their secret refuges. They said, let us all die in innocence. Heaven and earth are our witnesses that you destroy us unjustly. So the officers and soldiers attacked them on the Sabbath, and they died with their wives, their children, and their animals to the number of a thousand persons. End quote. That was the ultimate sacrifice for a law that they loved. Now, some of them did escape and join up with Mattathias and all these Jews that were inspired by his leadership, meeting up with him in the hills and caves of Judea, made him ruler. And after this event, they mourned for the thousand that died. And Mattathias made a decision from now on, we're going to defend ourselves, even if the fight is on the Sabbath. And because he inspired so many to follow him, he now has an army. Now it's a small one, and they're using desert caves as their bases, but they're strong enough to go about the villages and overthrow any of the idolatrous altars that were set up and kill those who broke God's law. They were getting rid of the lawless. And this is important because you have to remember what Daniel prophesied. The takeover of Jerusalem, what Antiochus did, the death of thousands of Jews, the captivity of many more, the sanctuary being cast down, all of that was because of lawlessness or transgression. Daniel prophesied, quote, And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered, end quote. By reason of transgression, lawlessness. And so Mattathias was solving the problem at its root cause. Antiochus and his generals, they were successful because of the sins of the people. And that's why God allowed it. It wasn't like when Alexander came conquering in, when the high priest was there leading and teaching the people to keep God's law. In that instance, God spared the people. God spared the city and delivered them. But only a few generations later, and now the Jews are steeped in lawlessness. And God lets Antiochus do all of this. All of this because of their desire to give up their religion and the law to conform to the modern culture, Hellenism. And Antiochus was stamping out the faith and the religion and the law of God. And if it hadn't been for Mattathias and people of like mind, personally, individually deciding to keep the law no matter what, Antiochus would have blotted it all out. Imagine our world today, the Western world built on part from Judaic Christian values and laws. Think about how that would be different without concepts like the rule of law or human life and the value it has. All of those concepts are central to what makes the West the West today. And it wouldn't have been possible except for these bands of Jews standing up for God's law. First Maccabee states, quote, They saved the law from the hands of the Gentiles and of the kings and did not let the sinner triumph. End quote. 
They saved the law. Now, I know we would all like to think we would have done the same in that situation, but remember, we learn a lot of the lessons in history by asking ourselves the hard questions and challenging our assumptions. How hard was it to do what they did? Well, you can get close to the idea because what the Greeks were offering to the Jews doesn't sound too foreign, and that's what I covered in the last episode. I talked about the ideas floating around in the Greek world and how familiar they would sound to us today. Ideas like evolution, moral relativism, the rejection of the divine. All of these were being discussed and debated in the Greek world, and those ideas filtered down to Judea in the Jewish world, especially in that ruling class. There is ideas like no absolute right and wrong, that religion is only as useful as far as it creates a moral society. Or that the only thing we know for sure is that pleasure is good and pain is bad. It really all sounds the same. And think about how many people today adopt that mindset, those theories, that culture, or you could say that religion, simply because it's what's needed to advance a career to look normal, or because it's just easier. We see it all around us today. Now, Mattathias and his family and the followers he inspired rejected the easy way. They embraced the struggle to save the law. And what a struggle. In this series, I've highlighted the biblical metaphor that God's way of life is light. Antiochus was trying to snuff out the light, and for a time he was successful, But Mattathias and his family and followers were like the glowing embers that were burning and glowing hot, so hot they were about to reignite the flame. What's so inspiring about the next part of the story is to see how God backs them up all the way through it. While the struggle is real and hard, God delivers them with miracle after miracle after miracle. Now, Mattathias was older, and after ruling for one year, he becomes sick and dies. And the next leader of this group, the next leader of the family, and the people keeping God's law becomes a man named Judas, who is also called Maccabeus. And that's where we get the name Maccabees. And that's when the real battles begin. Now, Judas and his band of followers are finally going to face their first major encounter. You see, up until this time, Mattathias and Judas had been going around the villages and cleaning up the act there, but there was no real resistance to them. The Jews oftentimes would just respond positively as well. But now they're going to face armed resistance from the troops of Antiochus. The general in this area was called Apollonius. Now Judas has a real fight on his hands, finally. Josephus records this, quote, When Apollonius, the general of the Samaritan forces, heard this, he took his army and made haste to go against Judas. Judas, who met him and joined battle with him and beat him and slew many of his men, and among them Apollonius himself, their general, whose sword being that which he happened then to wear, Judas seized upon and kept for himself. But he wounded more than he slew and took a great deal of prey from the enemy's camp and went his way. End quote. Now remember, Judas is leading a brand new army. And we're using the term army very loosely, by the way. 
These men aren't trained for war. There are no executions of advanced formations or maneuvers going on here. And you have to wonder how well armed the Jews were. And you get the feeling they're short on equipment because Judas keeps the good sword of the general. But even in that ragtag state, they did the job because God backed them up. How phenomenal is God's power to be able to perform all these miracles? And that's not to take away from the hardship, of course, and what Judas and the Jews are doing here. But God backs them up and he gives them victory in this first battle. But it now leads to a second battle, one that's even bigger. Judah's victory caught the attention of the general of the army in the entire region. That region would include the territory of the nations today of Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, and parts of Syria. So this was a pretty big region, which would mean that the next army Judas was going to face would be larger than the one they first encountered and much larger than his own. And you can see that that's the case by the reaction of Judas's army when they encounter this next enemy. Here's what the Maccabees records when the two armies meet in Judea. Quote, but when they, the Jewish army, saw the army coming against them, they said to Judas, How can we, few as we are, fight such a strong host as this? Besides, we are weak since we have not eaten today. But Judas said, Many are easily hemmed in by a few. In the sight of heaven there is no difference between deliverance by many or by few. For victory in war does not depend on the size of the army, but on strength that comes from heaven. With great presumption and lawlessness, they come against us to destroy us and our wives and children and to despoil us. But we are fighting for our lives and our laws. We will crush them before us, so do not fear them. When he finished speaking, he rushed suddenly upon Saron and his army, who were crushed before him. He pursued Saron down the descent of Betharon into the plain. About 800 of their men fell, and the rest fled to the land of the Philistines. Then Judas and his brothers began to be feared and dread fell upon the Gentiles about them. His fame reached the king, and the Gentiles talked about the battles of Judas. End quote. I love that. Fight for our lives and our laws. That's not something you'd expect to hear in a speech right before battle. You would hear something like, fight for your lives, but how often would you hear something like, fight for your laws? That shows how special of a place the law held in the minds of the Jews. And once again, I think one of the best comparisons is in America, where Americans fight for their constitution. This was a second miracle victory, this time against an overwhelmingly large army, led by a general that I didn't even bother to name. But it's because you'll see that the rest of the history just gets way more interesting. You see, after this battle, word is really beginning to spread about Judas and what he's doing. We have an open revolt, and the news of that finally reaches Antiochus. And he is, of course, livid about it. He is angry from the fact that his armies are getting crushed by the Jews, but he's also angry because what is happening in Judea shows a failure of his policy. Remember, the whole point for him of Hellenizing the Jews was to make them more compliant. But now that policy has led to the Jews to rebel. A previously good subject people are now up in arms. 
Not to mention Antiochus at this point, after spending so much money on his failed bid to take over Egypt on games and gifts and parties, was basically broke. He wanted to raise an army and hire mercenaries to quell this Jewish uprising, but his treasury is low. They had already pillaged and squandered the wealth they stole from the Jews, and so there wasn't much left over to pay for a big army. So really, he had to take care of his money problem first. So he raises what army that he could, but he splits it in half. He decides that he will take half of his army to Persia, towards the eastern part of his kingdom, to raise money by plundering and pillaging cities over there, but also enforcing the paying of taxes that had long been unpaid. The other half of his army, with some war elephants, he leaves with a governor named Lysias. Now, Lysias was in charge of the land in Antiochus' kingdom from Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River. So he's basically the governor of about a third of Antiochus' kingdom. And Antiochus gives instructions to Lysias of what he wants him to do with half that army while he goes off to war in the eastern provinces to collect and raise more money. According to the Maccabees, here was his instructions, quote, As for the inhabitants of Judea and Jerusalem, Lysias was to send an army against them to crush and destroy the power of Israel and the remnant of Jerusalem and efface their memory from the place. He was to settle foreigners in all their territory and distribute their land by lot, end quote. This was going to be a war of annihilation. No Jews were to be left in Judea. Those alive would be sold as slaves and the territory would be repopulated by other people. They wanted to blot out Judea completely. And now Judas is in the big leagues. He isn't fighting some provincial army or local garrison anymore. He is now fighting the royal army. And it's the kind of fight you expect between kings. You see, when Alexander died, his empire was torn apart by different generals and leaders that were all trying to claim their own territory and their own kingdoms. Like I said before, the Greeks and the Macedonians were all basically committing suicide by civil war. And so they would raise large army after large army to fight each other. But the army that was raised now wasn't aimed against hoplites and phalanxes, but instead against Judas and his ragtag army. Judas! That's how much attention he was getting at this time. You know, I've framed all of this in the battle between light and dark, and it kind of reminds me of Star Wars, the ragtag rebellion against the mighty evil empire. Josephus says that Lysias' army consisted of 40,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry and war elephants. 40,000 infantry. And as that army marched south towards Judea, the army would grow bigger from other local garrisons and even Hellenized Jews. Jews that were so caught up in the Greek world decided to join the army. Josephus calls them renegades. That's amazing to me. That's how far gone they are. They are fighting to destroy their own people. 
Now, if you think about it, an army that's nearly 50,000 strong is a very big army for this time period. Alexander took about that many troops with him to conquer the entire Persian Empire. And some sources say he had even less at the start. So Alexander took fewer troops and conquered an entire empire with that size of an army. Now his army, of course, was higher quality, but still, it just shows you what Judas is up against. And once again, I'd like to mention that this army had war elephants. Imagine being an infantryman facing a war elephant. It's like the ancient version of a tank. The Greeks first met war elephants in battle against the Persians when Alexander invaded in 331 BCE. Apparently they weren't that effective after a long march, but they were so impressive to Alexander that he incorporated war elephants into his army. And later the Seleucids, remember Antiochus is a Seleucid, were known for using them. That's because their kingdom was closest to India and that's where they would import the elephants from. And in fact, the Seleucids would sometimes even sell war elephants to other Greek kingdoms. Now, when I say elephants, I'm guessing the image that comes to mind is probably an elephant you've seen at a zoo. But I don't want you to think that way. Remember, these are war elephants and they're decked out for battle. Imagine an elephant whose tusks are sheathed in deadly blades so that if it rampaged, it could just slice up the infantry. The elephant would be steered by a rider and oftentimes there would be a javelin thrower on top that could throw javelins and other projectiles on the infantry. And sometimes if the elephant was big enough and they had enough troops there, they would even mount a lightweight turret. So they would put some wood and leather and put three or four javelin throwers on top of the elephant. But really, the main weapon was the elephant itself. Often their heads were armored. Sometimes the front of their body was armored as well. The sides would have thick leather draped over them for protection. And looking at a war elephant decked out like that with armor, with javelin throwers on top and with tusks that are sheathed in blades, you can see that this was mainly a psychological weapon. They would even hang bells on the elephant so that when the elephant charged and was trumpeting, there would be a louder noise and would scare or unhinge a soldier, especially one that was unprepared for it. And these elephants would basically become like wrecking balls. They would charge forward and disrupt the enemy formations. And you have to remember something about ancient warfare here. It was a brutal type of war one in which men would hack at each other at arm's length while staying in formations to keep them protected. But if a formation breaks, then all the troops in that formation would be exposed. And if you're an exposed infantryman, you were pretty much going to die. And so when you look at these battles historically, when the armies would meet each other, it was typically the army that first broke formation that lost because the men trying to avoid death would flee. And then you would later realize that there are more casualties caused in the fleeing than in face-to-face -face combat. So there was an enormous amount of pressure for men to break when the formation broke. Think about it. If you're on one end and the formation is breaking down, 
You're thinking to yourself, I can either run away now and have the best chance of living or wait till that mess reaches me and then it might be too late. And so that's what elephants would do. They would go in there and wreck the formations and cause the enemy to basically panic and flee. And even a wounded elephant would go mad and stampede everything around it. Sometimes they would actually stampede the wrong side, and that's why the Romans didn't really use them later on. The elephants were the kind of weapon the Seleucids relied on to instill fear in the local populations. So with this massive army, Lysias has three generals put in charge. There's a general named Ptolemy, Nicanor, and Gorgias. And so confident were these generals with these massive troops, remember 40,000 infantrymen, 7,000 cavalry, and war elephants. So confident were the Syrians in this large army that following after the army were merchants ready to buy captives. The merchants were there with chains and gold and silver because they were expecting the Jews to be sold into slavery. And they were so confident that they tagged along behind the army even before victory was gained. And really, if they were facing any other nation, that would have been the outcome. But this people had something backing them far mightier than an army of 50,000 troops and war elephants. They had God backing them. Judas learns about this massive approaching army. So he raises his army and brings them to Mizpah. Now Mizpah is northwest of Jerusalem, and the Maccabees states that Judas picked this place because it was known as a place of prayer, dating back to when the prophet Samuel judged Israel there back in ancient times. And then Judas does something highly unusual for armies. He makes them all fast and humble themselves before God. They humbly beseeched God for deliverance. They tore their garments. They put ash on their heads. First Maccabees records their prayer to God, quote, And they cried aloud to heaven, What shall we do with these, and where shall we take them? For your sanctuary has been trampled on and profane, and your priests are in mourning and humbled. Now the Gentiles are gathered together against us to destroy us. You know what they plot against us. How shall we be able to resist them unless you help us? Then they blew the trumpets and cried out loudly. End quote. The Jews were crying out to God, reminding God why they were even fighting to restore the temple, to restore his law. And they were humbly beseeching God for all of this. That was how the Jews were preparing to meet this massively large army. And after they fasted, after they cried out to God in prayer, Judas was finally ready to fight. He may not have had 40,000 troops and mercenaries and war elephants or cavalry or any of that, but he had God and that made him bold. You could see how confident he was. You can see his faith and what he did next. Now, pagan armies all the time would consult their gods, and some of them would even afflict themselves at times, but you don't ever read of a pagan army doing this. Here's what Judas did, quote, After this, Judas appointed officers for the people, over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. He proclaimed that those who were building houses, or were just married, or were planting vineyards, and those who were afraid could each return home according to the law, end quote. Judas had such godly confidence that he actually shrank his army 
Think about that. He's already outnumbered. But they weren't relying on numbers. They were relying on God. And so he followed the law and let those who are just married or built a house or were afraid, he let them lead. In many ways, you have a militia standing up to professional army because now there are only 3,000 Jews left after that. 3,000 Jews against an army the size of around 50,000. No wonder the Syrians were so confident in their victory. Judas gets his 3,000 men ready in the morning for battle. Here's what Maccabees says. He said, quote, Arm yourselves and be brave. In the morning, be ready to fight these Gentiles who have assembled against us to destroy us and our sanctuary. It is better for us to die in battle than to witness the evils befalling our nation and our sanctuary. Whatever is willed in heaven will be done. End quote. Now, the Greeks at this time were just starting to make their camp in Emmaus, a little village or town which was within striking distance of the Jews. They were so sure of themselves that one of the generals, Gorgias, decides to take the troops under his command, 5,000 infantrymen and 1,000 cavalry, and try a surprise attack at night. So he sets out with his smaller force probably sometime during the middle of the afternoon. But when he sets out to do that, Judas finds out because the local towns and villages, the Jews in there, were willing to spy for him. So they let him know a part of the Greek army was setting out for a surprise attack. Now Judas decides to go big at this point. He's going to risk it all on one decisive strike at the Greeks, especially since at this time they would be somewhat divided, and of course he knew God was backing him up. He decides to take his army and attack the enemy camp at Emmaus while Gorgias is marching down to attack them. Now he knew they would still be vastly outnumbered, but at least it would give him the best shot of taking down this army. And it's important to note too that big armies take some time to set up. It takes a lot of food to feed 40,000 people. It takes a lot of provisions for the animals. All of that takes time and oftentimes while an enemy army is setting up camp, they have to send out scavenging parties to go forage and bring back food. So this is the perfect time for Judas to attack. The army is slightly smaller and they're not yet ready. Judas, though, he still has to keep Gorgias occupied. So before he leaves, he has all the Jews light fires and leave them going on in their camp as if they were still there. And then he takes his army, marches all through the night, careful to avoid Gorgias and his army, and reaches Emmaus early that morning. It's going to be a surprise attack on an enemy army in its camp that is undefended and not ready to fight. That's about as good as it gets for Judas. And it's important to note because army camps could be transformed into basically a fort. You see, the Romans perfected this. They would build a well-defended camp that would be like a fort because it would have a wooden palisade all around the camp. They would have a trench in front of it. And so it would be very hard for you to challenge the Romans in their camp. But here, the Greeks kept their camp wide open. And even though it was undefended, it would still be a very big camp. And if at any time the Greeks could rally around and get their act together, they could push back the Jews. So Judas bolsters the courage of his men. He reminds them of their glorious history. First Maccabees says that he told his troops this, quote, Do not fear their numbers or dread their attack. Remember how our ancestors were saved in the Red Sea when Pharaoh pursued them with an army. 
So now let us cry to heaven in the hope that he will favor us. Remember the covenant with our ancestors and destroy this army before us today. All the Gentiles shall know that there is one who redeems and delivers Israel." End quote. Judas has trumpets of war blown and the army rushes into the Greek camp and slaughters them. The Greeks were so surprised. Most of them just fled and the few that stayed behind were cut down by the Jews. Now we don't have many details about what happened when the Jews attacked the camp in that morning, but I imagine there's a good chance that the elephants got spooked and probably rampaged and stampeded all over the enemy camp for a while. And so it went very well for the Jews. In fact, they were chasing Greek soldiers as far as Ashdod, miles and miles away. Altogether, Josephus says about 3,000 of the Greek troops were killed. And Judas's army begins to plunder the enemy camp as well. But Judas actually warns him to stop. He says, look, Gorgias is going to come back and fight us, so we need to be ready for it. And sure enough, right about that time, Gorgias does appear with his 5,000 troops and his 1,000 cavalry. But when he shows up and his troops see how the camp was destroyed and see the smoke from the Jews burning some of it down, they were so frightened and shocked that they fled. Now, Gorgias probably thought it'd be better to regroup than risk his life fighting the army. And when you think about the fact that the Jews just took out a force much, much larger than them, that would be a safe route to go. So they flee and Judas and his army wins again. The third time. Each time they win, it was more spectacular too. Judas and his army are now able to safely plunder the camp. They grab all that silver and gold the merchants brought. Remember the money that was supposed to be used to sell their wives and children into captivity. They take all of that and it turned out to be a great source of wealth for the Jews. And they're also finally to take swords and armor and now the army could be better equipped. Josephus says the victory is so miraculous, so complete, that afterwards the Jews, as they went back home, were singing hymns to God for their success. Now, Lysias is embarrassed and upset when he finds out what happens. He takes some time to gather his army. Now, he's embarrassed, and I'm sure he's thinking that Judas just got lucky. And maybe even if Gorgias hadn't left and divided the troops somewhat, that they wouldn't have lost. So he's probably coming just as confident as before. And now his army is even bigger. This time, the army facing Judas is 60,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry. And he marches down to Judea and he decides to meet Judas in the hills. You can see the effect of Judas's victories, though, because now he has 10,000 Jews with him. So he's able to inspire more and more to follow him. He's able to inspire bravery and courage to stand up against the Greeks. And even then, they're vastly outnumbered. So once again, Judas leads his army to seek deliverance in God. Judas prays to God for victory. He has the whole army there beseech God. And when they're done, he goes on the attack. And that's one of the great things about Judas. He always goes on the attack. He's not one to wait around. He's one to force the issue. The two armies meet in the Judean hills. And once again, in a miraculous victory, Judas crushes the Greek army, killing 5,000 troops this time. It's another miracle from God. 
the fourth victory for Judas, who's undefeated and facing larger and larger armies every time. It's incredible what God is doing through him and his army. Now, of course, they have their own part to play in it, but you see God's power behind this. It's clear to Lysias that the Jewish fighting spirit is so powerful that his largely mercenary army just can't stand up to it. Josephus writes this, quote, Lysias, observing the great spirit of the Jews, how they were prepared to die rather than lose their liberty, and being afraid of their desperate way of fighting as if it were real strength, he took the rest of the army back with him and returned to Antioch, where he listed foreigners in the service and prepared to fall upon Judea with a greater army. End quote. So Lysias retreats again. The Greeks retreat for a second time, and this time they give the Jews even more breathing room as they try to raise a larger army and figure out how to pay for it. All of that takes time. And at this point, you see how Judas once again reminds us of King David, that young man who stood up to the Philistines in complete confidence that God would deliver him. And when he took down Goliath, he inspired all of Israel to fight its enemies. And you see later on in that history that basically Israel became giant slayers. Judas is like that, inspiring the Jews to fight for their law, fight for their way of life, to continue fighting for God. The first Maccabees describes him in this poem. And I thought I'd share it because I thought it was just a wonderful way to remember Judas's deeds. Quote, in his deeds, he was like a lion, like a young lion roaring for prey. He pursued the lawless, hunting them out, and those who troubled his people he destroyed by fire. The lawless were cowed by fear of him, and all evildoers were dismayed. By his hand deliverance was happily achieved, and he afflicted many kings. He gave joy to Jacob by his deeds, and his memories blessed forever. He went about the cities of Judah, destroying the renegades there. He turned away wrath from Israel, was renowned to the ends of the earth, and gathered together those who were perishing. End quote. The Jews had a valiant leader, a mighty man, through which God worked miracle after miracle. Four battles, each with total victory. Each battle, the odds were stacked higher and higher against the Jews. But in each battle, the miracles were greater and greater. And all these battles, all these miracles led to what happened next. And this was far more important than the defeat of armies. This was at the center of what God was doing through Judas and at the heart of what truly inspired the Jews. Here's what Josephus records that happened next. Quote, Judas assembled the people together and told them that after these many victories which God had given them, they ought to go up to Jerusalem and purify the temple and offer the appointed sacrifices. End quote. The Jews were finally going to have a chance to clean the temple up, remove the profanity, and set right but was cast down. So Judas takes his army, he takes the people down to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they're shocked because the temple is deserted and it's just left lying in ruin. And when they get there, they begin to set things right. Josephus records this, quote, But as soon as he, with the whole multitude, was come to Jerusalem and found the temple deserted and its gates burnt down and plants growing in the temple of their own accord on account of its desertion, he and those that were with him began to lament and were quite confounded at the sight of the temple. So he chose out some of his soldiers and gave them order to fight against those guards which were in the citadel until he should have purified the temple. 
When therefore he had carefully purged it and had brought in new vessels, the candlestick, the table, and the altar, which were made of gold, he hung up the veils at the gates and added doors to them. He also took down the altar and built a new one, of stones that he had gathered together, and not of such as were hewn with iron tools. So on the five and twentieth day of the month Caslu, which Macedonians called Apollines, they lighted the lamps that were on the candlestick, and offered incense upon the altar, and laid the loaves upon the table, and offered burnt offerings upon the new altar. End quote. Judas cleanses the temple. He and the priests are careful to get it all the way back the way it's supposed to be, the way it was recorded in their law. He gets rid of the pagan altar. He builds a brand new one, a pure one. He brings in new vessels to replace the ones that were stolen with a new lampstand and a new table, all made of gold. And now you see how God even worked that out because remember the gold and the silver that the slavers brought? That's what they used to make the new vessels. All of that was put to good use. Judas even hangs up the veil. He puts it all back the way it needs to be. And he lights the lampstand with its seven lamps. The light is finally back on. The world had gone dark. God's knowledge and law had almost been completely wiped out. But now there was light again. This was the whole point. You see, we referred to Daniel quite a bit in the earlier episodes because he records all of this history as a prophecy. And most of the world doesn't believe it because of how accurate of a prophecy this was. But it's all there in Daniel written hundreds of years earlier. And it was an inspiration to the Jews who clung to it. Judas and his followers would have known about it and been looking forward to fulfilling it. Why else would Judas choose that time to clean the temple? He had beaten Lysias for a second time, but they were still there. The armies of Antiochus were still threatening invasion. And when you look at the history, it would take years and years of fighting for them to even keep the light on. And Judas and all his brothers died fighting for it. But it all points us back to what God prophesied through the prophet Daniel. Daniel wrote this prophecy down in the eighth chapter. Quote, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. End quote. Daniel prophesied exactly how long it would take for the temple to be cleansed. And those days were fulfilled exactly. Josephus writes this, quote, and this desolation came to pass according to the prophecy of Daniel, which was given 408 years before, for he declared that the Macedonians would dissolve that worship for some time. End quote. What a miracle and proof of God's power. It all came to pass as God prophesied, and there was even another miracle involved at this time. According to Jewish tradition, there is only enough pure, unadulterated oil to keep the lampstand burning for one day, and it would take eight days to make more oil for it. But Judas and the priest, they lighted the lampstand anyway, and it miraculously kept burning for eight days. Eight days! Just long enough for the priest to make pure replacement oil. It was a miracle, and the Jews declared an eight-day festival to remember all of these miracles and this history. Here's what Josephus writes, quote, 
Now Judas celebrated the festival of the restoration of the sacrifices of the temple for eight days and admitted no sort of pleasures thereon, but he feasted them upon very rich and splendid sacrifices, and he honored God and delighted them by hymns and psalms. Nay, they were so very glad at the revival of their customs when, after a long time of intermission, they unexpectedly had regained the freedom of their worship, that they made it a law for their posterity, that they should keep a festival on account of the restoration of their temple worship for eight days. And from that time to this, we celebrate this festival and call it Lights. End quote. What a powerful name for it. Lights. There was real light coming from the temple. The laws and the knowledge of the true God would keep glowing bright. This is where Judas's part in the prophecy recorded in Daniel comes to an end and where I'll stop the history too. Like I mentioned before, the Jews had to continue to fight on, of course, and fight harder and harder. And there are many examples of courage recorded in those wars. And what the Maccabees did reminds me of how Jacob prophesied that the descendants of Judah would be like a lion. And it's clear, too, that this was according to God's plan. He was working it all out, rewarding those who relied on him. Like the Bible says, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? I do want to pause, though, and show what's recorded about Antiochus. Now remember, while the Maccabees were fighting Antiochus' army, Antiochus was over in the eastern part of his kingdom, in the area of Persia, leading a different army, and he was leading this army in order to raise more money by pillage and plunder. His treasury was so depleted after his defeat at the hands of the Romans and all his profligate spending on his parties that he had to do this. Here's what Josephus records, quote, About this time, it was that King Antiochus, as he was going over the upper countries, heard that there was a very rich city in Persia called Elymas, and there in a very rich temple of Diana, and that it was full of all sorts of donations dedicated to it, as also weapons and breastplates, which upon inquiry he found had been left there by Alexander, the son of Philip, king of Macedonia. And being incited by these motives, he went in haste to Elymas, and assaulted it, and besieged it. But as those that were in it were not terrified at his assault, nor at his siege, but opposed him very courageously, he was beaten off his hopes. For they drove him away from the city and went out and pursued after him, insomuch that he fled away as far as Babylon and lost a great many of his army. And when he was grieving for this disappointment, some persons told him of the defeat of his commanders whom he had left behind him to fight against Judea and what strength the Jews had already gotten. When this concern about these affairs was added to the former, he was confounded. And by the anxiety, he fell into a distemper which as it lasted a great while, and as his pains increased upon him, so he at length perceived he should die in a little time. And so he called his friends to him and told them that his distemper was severe upon him, and confessed with all that this calamity was sent upon him for the miseries he had brought upon the Jewish nation, while he plundered their temple and condemned their God. And when he had said this, he gave up the ghost. End quote. Now it's hard to know how much of this is true, of course, but it looks like, at least to Josephus, that Antiochus might have actually had regret for what he did. If so, that would be incredible. Now, Polybius says something similar, but he points to his attempt to take the Temple of Diana as what was eating him up. Polybius writes this, 
Quote, in Syria, King Antiochus, wishing to provide himself with money, decided to make an expedition against the sanctuary of Artemis and Ilmes. On reaching the spot, he was foiled in his hopes, as the barbarian tribes who dwelt in the neighborhood would not permit the outrage, and on his retreat he died at Tabai in Persia, smitten with madness, and some people say, owing to certain manifestations of divine displeasure when he was attempting this outrage on the above sanctuary. End quote. It seems like, though, if he regretted it or not, that he died from a disease in his head. You could say the madness took over and claimed his life. So whether you believe Polybius or Josephus on where his regret came from, either way, you see that Antiochus died from some kind of madness in the head. We had seen how even from a young age, he was mentally unstable and how Antiochus, possessed by an evil spirit, was insane, and you could say the darkness overcame him in the end. But in Jerusalem, in the middle of all these kingdoms and the rise and fall of empires, there was light. And that's what this series is all about. Light versus dark. God's way is light. And Antiochus, inspired by an evil spirit, tried to do all he could to extinguish that light, and that opportunity came because so many Jews were rejecting God's law, and they chose a life of acceptance, comfort, and ease instead of continual battle. They cast down that light and drank in the darkness. And as a result, they were deceived, invited war, and battle came anyway. This history is not negative, though. In this history, we have the Festival of Lights and miracle after miracle. It's a story of how if you are willing to stand up for God, he will back you up and God will do great things for you, winning battle after battle for you. Light will prevail, but it requires our vigilance. That's what this history demonstrates to us, how precious that light is. And if no one stands up for it, if no one treasures it, if no one is willing to die for it, it disappears and darkness takes over. You can think about these lessons for a long time. And remember, without the action taken by the Maccabees, God's way of life would have been blotted out. The Jews would have been blotted out. Their identity wiped out, just like the other tribes of Israel. God's law and his values gone forever. And our world today would be utterly different. It takes action to keep the light on. What a powerful metaphor. I started this series with a quick discussion on light. How we need it for life and for knowledge even though we don't even really know what it is. God's way of life, his revelation and law is like that. We need it for knowledge and life. And it's something that we can't explain physically because after all, it's a spiritual matter. I'll end with the question I started at the beginning of the series. When the forces of dark try to snuff the light out, how far are you willing to go to keep the light on. Today's show is the last in my series about Antiochus and what he did. Of course, the true story in this is how it was all prophesied by God ahead of time and the lessons it teaches us about how we can love God's truth. If you want to learn more about these prophecies and what they mean for us today, Request Gerald Flurry's free booklets, Daniel Unsealed at Last and Daniel Unlocks Revelation. 
Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on kpcg.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on thetrumpet.com or on kpcg.fm.